0: Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, trauma is a word that's becoming increasingly more common. And I think it's, especially since COVID, I think it's been coming up more and more. And it's, sometimes it's uh, hard to put your arms around it and understand it. But today, I think we're going to sort all that out. I've got a couple of very special guests uh, with me for the full hour. So I know you're going to have questions, so get them ready to send over. You can always text questions at any time. Especially if you hear something that you need clarification on or you've got a comment to make or a question to ask, you're always welcome to do that. And, of course, that number is 877-933-2484. I'm getting two for one today. I'm very excited about this. I've had Beth Guckenberger on the show many times. She's a missionary and author of eight books. She's the co-executive director of Back to Back Ministries. And she is, and her husband Todd have raised 10 kids Um, foster biological adoption, they've done it all. And Rob Hall is president of Trauma-Free World. We're going to learn about that today. And he got his doctorate in educational leadership at the University of Kentucky. So we're glad to have them both with me on the studio line. Welcome to both of you, Beth and Rob.
2: Hi, thanks for having us today. Yeah. Hey, Bill,
3: glad to be on.
0: Really glad to have you with me. I know this trauma is, I hear about it more and more, and it seems like trauma used to be something you hear about only periodically. Now you hear about it all the time. So I would love I would love to start talking about this word trauma. And um, is there a, like a definition of trauma that's helpful for people to understand?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I for any of your listeners who are like, "Oh, this is going to be a really hard hour or a heavy hour or even a discouraging hour." It's actually going to be just the opposite. It's unbelievable the way in which God designed our bodies to heal. And so it's actually a very hopefully will be a very hopeful hour, and it'll be a very um encouraging hour for anyone who finds themselves interacting with um people who are in really hard stories but I appreciate I that class. Beth,
0: and just so you know as the host, I was supposed to say something like that, but I'm glad you said it
2: <laughs> okay good well it's okay. Yeah. we can we can share those duties tonight okay good yeah i uh, I think of trauma um, Dr. Dan Siegel would say trauma is. Anything that overwhelms the ability to cope. So if, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'll tell you the story of when I started uh, understanding the scope of trauma in our world, I, um, I was... I actually had this dream. Hopefully your listeners will go with me down this trail, but I had this dream one night and I woke up in in the dream, and I was building a bridge across the river and I didn't have enough materials. And I asked my husband, I woke up. I'm like, God dream, dream felt almost spiritual. What do you think it means? And we were in the process of adopting a child that was older and from a really hard place. And I thought, he goes, well, maybe you think you don't have, we don't have what it takes to do this. And I said, that makes sense. And then later that night I flew to go speak at a conference in Atlanta, And after the conference, people were milling around, and this lady kind of buzzes her way up to the front. And she said, hey, I want to tell you something. I'd never met her before. She said, I had this vision kind of while you were speaking. I feel like you were trying to build a bridge over a river, and you didn't have enough materials to do it. And I grabbed her hands, and I said, I think Jesus set us up on a blind date. Who are you? (laughs) And her name was Dr. Susan Hillis. She works for the CDC. And and we began to have a conversation that night and she told me that they this was years ago but they had they had determined the this, this centers for disease control in conjunction with a couple other institutions that of the 2 billion children on our planet today that 50% of them or 1 billion children have experienced trauma so when i started to put my head around a half and that was before covid you know half of our planet's children, have experienced something that overwhelms their ability to cope, then I realized this this isn't a problem for someone else to think about. This is a problem for all of us to engage in.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing. Rob, do you have something to add into that?
2: Yeah, I think
3: the only thing I might add to that is that it also, trauma, as compared to even stress, which sometimes can overwhelm our ability to cope, trauma also brings with it the sense that it might Take my life, or it might be life-threatening, and so that's a distinction sometimes between um, what can feel like overwhelming stress and how that then becomes uh, a feel of feeling like trauma or experiencing trauma. This idea that it might it might take my life.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that that distinction, Rob. And I'm guessing that there are different kinds of trauma then, just by that comment alone.
3: Yeah. there are. Yeah, there are different kinds of trauma. The, there's acute trauma, which is uh, a car crash or um, you know a one-time event. Um, we often think of trauma in that way. But there are two other kinds of trauma, which we probably would spend most of our time talking about today, and that is chronic trauma. That is something that happens over and over and over again. Um, that could be like, as Beth was talking about with children, that could involve abuse or neglect or abandonment and we hear a lot about that in the third world but it's not limited to the third world a lot of those things happen in the developing world and a lot of those things happen right in our neighborhood the neighborhoods where your listeners are and then there's this third kind of trauma called complex developmental trauma and that's chronic trauma but it happens to children who are less than four years old and it's called complex developmental trauma because that's when the brain and the body and everything is really developing at a rapid pace. and so this kind of trauma affects the development of children. and uh, you know Beth has been working in the in the field for so long, and as you mentioned, uh, adoptive kids foster kids in her family um, and she has experienced firsthand that kind of developmental trauma, as I'm sure. Um, many of those many of our listeners have who who've taken in children in foster care and adoption and um, you know it's it's a, affected them as young kids
0: Beth I would love for you to comment on when rob talks about complex developmental trauma what is actually happening that's causing this to these young kids
2: yeah it could be anything uh, from neglect to abandonment um, to outright abuse But long before I knew the science, so my first adoption was 23 years ago, and I didn't really know almost anything about the science that goes behind all of this. I just kind of had my instincts, and I had a couple of good books, and I had, um, you know, good good examples around me, but I didn't understand. What we know now, though, is that God designed our brain to heal. So even if we've had some of that really – Complex developmental trauma—that really the most comp, the most difficult kind of trauma someone can experience—and it impacts biology, brain, behavior, all of it. Your body, um, God's designed our, our brains to heal, and one of the ways our brains can heal is through uh, being heard, being listened to, and another way our brains heal is through play. So, like when we, when you think about the totality of the problem, and you interact with a child who's had some really difficult ex- circumstances. Without the intervention of a safe adult, you can kind of predict with pretty stunning accuracy the trajectory of their life. But when a safe adult decides to intervene into that child's life and they begin to do things like listen and play and all the other fun things that we'll spend this hour talking about, you see healing occur and then you get to see, you know, um, what God does inside of a relationship. And, so for me, my goal in this hour is to encourage your listeners to be involved in the lives of kids who have had traumatic histories and recognize that they probably already have in their hands some of the tools they need to make a very significant difference in the lives of those kids.
0: I love that encouragement, Rob.
3: Yeah, I think uh, yeah I, I think Beth is exactly right. Um, some of the things that happen to kids, if, if people are really interested in the what has happened, you know, especially kids under four with development, you can see um, from PET scans, brain scans, that children's brains actually who've experienced trauma are smaller. Um, If they've not received enough nutrition, right, that that their bodies haven't grown. So their biology is affected. And what we even know from the research is this happens pre-birth. A difficult pregnancy, for example, can lead to traumatic experiences. There's a you know, I hear stories a lot, uh, Bill, of people who have adopted children young in the first couple of months and they believe, hey, they won't have any real memory of what happened to them before <laughs> I adopted or I fostered them. But the fact of the matter is that their brain, their body, their biology does carry even even the memory, uh, the precognitive memory of what happened to them. And so that's that's why sometimes love isn't necessarily enough. If someone has moved into a family, uh, even at a young age, and you'd love them and you'd treat them as well as any other child that, that you come into contact with, but if you don't understand the role of trauma in their life, even if they've only spent a few months apart from you, it can have real lifelong uh, effects on children, and that's where um, the intervention of someone who... Who has a little bit of knowledge and information has been trained in trauma informed principles, can help as Beth said the healing of children.
0: I love that we keep talking about the healing part because that's critical. Otherwise, this is a very scary topic.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. And and I so like for us we were missionaries um, for you know 15 years working with orphans in other countries before I really got my head into this field and understood. And it, it, we were working with teenagers, uh, orphaned teenagers. We were putting them through college. We thought that was fabulous that we were getting the chance to break those generational cycles. One of our first college graduates came and told us six weeks after he started his great job as an engineer that he was going to quit. My husband's like, why are you quitting? And he said, well, there's this guy who follows me around all the time. And he's always telling me what to do, and he drives me crazy. And My husband was like, is is he your boss? And he's like, yes, I can't stand it. And we looked at each other and realized that we have helped graduate this emotional, um, frankly, train wreck. We hadn't adequately addressed his issues with authority or resolving conflict or men or his father figures. And so he was carrying all that trauma into his employment. And it didn't matter that he had a fancy degree. The truth of the matter is he was still struggling to function in his everyday work life. And so that took us, even though we had been missionaries for 15 years, it took us all the way back to the very beginning, and we said, what is it that we need to know in order to help kids um, sustain relationships, be able to ask for help, um, work in a team, have dreams, for their, goals for their future? Um, what, what is it that we need to do? And that's when we really started to pair together our faith with some of the research and science, and um, that was the birth of the Trauma-Free World training that we now offer around the world.
0: Beth, and this gentleman you are just speaking about, this is was one of your adopted children, is that correct?
2: He was a child that was in, um, in our programming. Oh, gotcha, so in your programming. In, yeah, in our programming. And so we were offering, he, he came from a really difficult background, and he had overcome quite a bit in order to achieve the level of education that he had. And I think part of what I want your listeners to hear is that good, there's good programming going all around the world, like in community development, and microfinance, and education programs, great programming, but only the most resilient children are finding success in that. The vast majority of, of people who've experienced trauma, they don't know how to ask for help. They don't like setbacks and mistakes. They don't know how to work in a team. They, they struggle in those areas. And so I think with a little bit of understanding of what of how God made our bodies and the tools that we need to unlock some of that healing, we could see dramatic results within all of that exciting ministry programming that's going on all around the world. That's that's what like makes me want to get on this show and tell (laughs) everywhere that we can. We, we, we believe God desires and designed people to heal because, because the trauma happened in relationship, healing actually has to happen in relationship. That's the it's healing is relationship dependent. Hmm. So to, To give people tools for that healing, um, it it wakes us up every day. (laughs) It's very exciting.
0: Well, you guys are awesome. Let me take my first break. Uh, Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall, president of the organization called Trauma Free World, are my guests today. We're talking about trauma and all the things that surround it. We're going to come back and talk about the difference between stress and trauma. Be right back.
1: are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat
0: performance. Welcome back. I've got two special guests on today. Beth Guckenberger is one of them. She can come on my show anytime. She wants to talk about whatever she wants to talk about. But she has with her, Rob Hall, president of the organization Trauma-Free World. I want to learn about more, uh, more about that towards the end of the hour but let's go back to our topic at hand, which is trauma and understanding trauma as best we can. And maybe we can talk about the difference between stress and trauma.
2: Oh, yeah. I thought maybe I would start by telling your listeners. Um, uh, one of the days when I felt this inside my own house. So as you said at the top of the hour, um, our family has been formed through adoption, foster care, and biological children. And one of my foster daughters had been in my home um, about four years when this story happened. So I'd spent a lot of time building into her life, but we were at this crossroads. She was 15 years old, and um, I don't know if any of your listeners have anyone like this in their family, but she was just she brought tension into every room she came into. She walked out of school, out of her room one day to get ready to go to school, and she was wearing something inappropriate. And I told her, "You can't wear that to school. You got to go change." She came out of a room in something equally inappropriate. Third time into the room, she came out with something that I had purchased her. So I said, "You look fabulous. Have a great day at school." But she and I both knew that she walked out of my house and around the corner and ripped off the outer layer, and underneath she had on exactly what she wanted to wear. Mm -hmm. And I knew she won, and she knew she won. And I had one of our um, consultants was with us. Um, His his specialty, Dr. Kyle Miller, is in this area, and he just drew me really simply on a napkin a picture of a tree. And he said, Pat, listen to me. There, There's three parts to this tree, the foliage, the trunk, and the roots. And he's like, I want you to imagine the top of the tree represents attitude and actions. It's like, I listened to you parent her, and all you're doing is addressing her attitude and actions. It's like you're cutting off the top of her tree. It's like, do you know anything about horticulture? When you cut off a tree, it grows back twice as strong. Hmm. I said, you're right. he said, that little girl walked out of here in an inappropriate miniskirt because her, her attitude and actions are tied to the trunk of her tree, which represents her self-image, how she sees herself. He's like she didn't walk out of here on that to be one personal to you. She thinks her value, her core value comes from the way she looks in that skirt. So her attitude and actions come from her self-image. It's like her self-image comes from her root system, her understanding of truth. He's like, I listen to you, parent. You're spending too much time at the top of the tree. You need to think about how to invest in her root system as she understands things that are true it'll impact how she sees herself and that will eventually change her attitude and actions and i took that because he's an expert and i was i was failing at that moment so i was hungry for feedback and he said i have a prescription for you i want you to spend the next 90 days not talking to her once about her attitude and actions." And I said, not even one time? What about like homework or internet or curfew or dishes or like nothing? And he said, well, how's that been working out for you? And I said, not that well. He said, just just unless she's going to hurt herself or someone else, only talk to her about things that you know for sure are true. And I I just want to confess, I was already a professional Christian at that point. I'd been a missionary for a long time. I'd written a bunch of books. Like, I knew my Bible, but it was harder than I thought it would be to make sure that that airtime between the two of us was not about just her attitude and actions. It was actually about the core person that she is and the way that God sees her. And, I mean, I had to go to my Bible in the morning and look for things that were true that I would figure out how to pepper into my conversations when she got home from school. And it doesn't always happen this way, but in her case, about 80 days into that 90, he prayed to receive Jesus. And I mean, I remember looking at my husband saying, baby, it, like the rapture is imminent because it is finished. <laughs> like, we just, like, I can't believe it. But the, really, the Bible tells us that truth is like, honey, it's sweet to the taste. And the more that I found ways to tell things that were true, the more she wanted to become next to me. And I think that's part of what you see the difference between stress and trauma. Stress is very situational; trauma is very fundamental. It's actually elemental. It's, it's, it's woven itself into the fabric of how people see themselves. There's a really great kind of complex secular book um, that's called The Body Keeps Score, and it talks about how we actually absorb the trauma in a way that changes the way that we, our body, even responds to people and situations and relationship. And so I think. I think as a parent or a classroom teacher or a Sunday school teacher or a community coach or a mentor or whomever it is that's deciding to, to intervene in the life of a child with trauma, understanding how to make sure that you major in things that are true and not just in attitude and actions becomes a real game changer in relationship and then certainly eventually in outcomes.
3: Wow. Rob? Yeah, I love that story. I've heard I've heard Beth tell that story before, and I love it every single time. And the reason I love that story is, unbeknownst probably to Beth and even the the folks giving her advice then, was this concept again of of the different levels of stress. There is positive stress. All of us experience positive stress, right? Um, you know, if you're an athlete and you're and you're worried about an upcoming event or you're a speaker. You, you may even feel this, Bill. You've done this show so many times, maybe you don't at this point. But you're about to go on the air, and the adrenaline is pumping. That's positive stress. Our body responds in a particular way with adrenaline and excitement, maybe butterflies. So that's a, that's positive stress. There's also a called tolerable stress. This is stress that activates a lot of the body's alert systems to a, a degree that's a little bit more severe, perhaps longer-lasting than that positive stress that I talked about. So those are two different kinds of stress. It could be frightening, um, but this third st- uh, this third type, which is called toxic stress, is really what I believe what was what Beth was, in her simple way, helping her daughter kind of flush out of what was going on inside of her body and brain. And this kind of toxic stress it occurs when a when a child experiences strong, frequent, prolonged threats. This is the kind of thing that leads to trauma. It's, it takes the step from being tolerable or even chronic, and it becomes toxic. And the way your body reacts, it fills itself with all kinds of chemicals. Um, and the best way for those to go away is to do exactly what Beth did, which was to eliminate this idea that I have to defend myself, that I have to protect myself. And, and that advice Beth got is such great advice dial down and allowed her daughter to say oh my gosh I'm safe oh my gosh this person loves and and cares for me I can trust them and that toxic level of stress over the it took two maybe three months of time for that kind of uh, stress to begin to be eliminated from her body and she was then able to interact with other people Beth talked about it before that that trauma is healed in the context of a relationship this is a perfect example of that. And what I would really love to say to your listeners is, it's not magic. It may not happen in two weeks, two months, two years. It may take two decades. But Beth is absolutely right that the Lord has created our bodies to heal. And when we can interact with people in a way that that promotes that kind of healing, the Lord will be true to that and healing healing will come in the context of that relationship.
0: Yeah it, yeah, it sounds so counterintuitive, but it's just so wise. Let me take a little break. I've got Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall as my guests We're talking about trauma. When we come back, I want to ask them about traumatic events from when people were small children. Do they still have an effect when they become older? So, in other words, if you don't remember something traumatic that happened when you were an infant, can it still possibly affect you? later in life. We'll check in with them when we come right back.
1: You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat
3: performance.
0: I'm so glad to have Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall on the program today. We're talking about trauma, and this has uh, been quite a fascinating discussion so far. Thank you so much for being on the show today as we discuss Absolutely. yeah, as we discussed trauma and some of the traumatic events that happen to people. Let's talk about what happens when small kids have a traumatic effect. Does it affect them when they become older?
2: Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I think um, absolutely it does. I mean, when, even you, if they someone, don't know,
0: even if they have no recollection of any of this.
2: Yeah, because their biology is making an impression. Like we talk about how a child that comes out of my body, for example, um, I hopefully in a loving home, by the time that child is two, I have told that child, yes, in a hundred ways. Yes, you're hungry, I'll feed you. Yes, you're crying, I'll pick you up. Yes, you're tired, I'll rock you to sleep. Yes, you're cold, I'll cover you up. Yes, yes, yes. Then a child comes, you know, then by the time they're two and I have to say, no, you can't put your finger in the socket. No, you can't run across the street. The no's, the yes bank is so full, no's don't really make a very noticeable withdrawal. But a child that's had any kind of history of trauma they haven't gotten enough of the right yeses in their bank. And so even seemingly, you know, minute requests of them at age two and four and six and eight that seem like very logical, like they should be able to understand the cause and effect of that request or that choice or that correction. Kids will have this extraordinary reaction and their caregiver is like, where did that come from? I just said, and so one of the tools that we teach people is, to try to figure out ways to say yes as much as possible at every stage in the game for kids. So even if like we adopted a son who was 12 when he came into my house and he had never had access to a pantry the way our house has a pantry. And he'd never had access to food like that before. So he wanted, you know, Doritos for breakfast and ice cream for brunch. And, and he would say like, mom, can I have, you know, a chocolate milkshake? And I'd say Instead of saying, no, you can't have it, I would say, yes, you totally can. Probably we'll wait till after lunch. Or, yes, why don't we make it now and we'll save it for after you've had your lunch. Or, like, try to reframe my no in a way that sounds like yes, because I have some catch-up to do with him to get some yeses into his bank. Hmm. It's, yeah, it's a really powerful way um, to begin to reverse some of the things that happened before he even realized they happened against him.
3: Yeah, and I'd add to that, Bill, that one of the things that people don't think about is actually the effect of, uh, as I was talking before the break, of like toxic stress. It can actually affect a baby in utero, right? And so we don't think of those kinds of effects. But cortisol, for example, is a a stress chemical that if a mother is under toxic stress um, while she's pregnant, those chemicals can actually be passed to her child in utero, Mm -hmm. and it has a long-term effect on the development of a child's brain, for example. Now, obviously, uh, the longer someone is um, exposed to toxic stress, a child is exposed to to toxic stress, the more difficult it will be, as Beth just gave an example, the power of yes, the more difficult it might be to help overcome those effects. But yes, even in utero, even before children have a cognitive memory or are pre-verbal, that the effects of stress that they will have no memory of, the effects of trauma that they will have no conscious memory of can affect the way that their body works, the way that their uh, brain chemicals work, the way the synapses in their brain have been connecting. And there's really some some fantastic conversation and, and research around attachment styles, for example, which are established in the first year of life, the way that children learn to attach to other people for the duration of their life, Hmm. that kind of that kind of uh, attachment that happens in the first year is going to set up the way that they interact relationally with people for the rest of their life. The research is really fascinating, um, and it is, again, the kind of thing that happens before kids are even aware that it's happening to them.
0: All right, it just got personal.
3: <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, hmm.
0: All right, before I move on, I want to say a, a listener jumped in with this. Beth was talking about personal real-life events as toxic stress. Could the things we see and experience on social media be a form of toxic stress?
2: I mean, certainly. I I would argue we were not designed to understand life outside of about the village size, and yet today we have access to hard news that are go- that's going on all around the world, the images and the weight of experiences and news that will never actually directly impact our life and our immediate circle, um, but we now carry some of that. So I think absolutely, in fact, I, th- I said to Rob, I wanna make sure that we talk a minute about how adults need to practice some self-care when they're engaging with kids from hard places, because not only can we can we experience trauma from things we see in social media, but there's, there's a form of trauma that caregivers can have like a compassionate, kind of, um, it, it's it's like a secondary trauma that we can have as adults because we are engaged in stories that are really hard and really heavy. And a, an important part of an adult and the rhythm of an adult is is just healthy self-care so that they can create the margin that's required to give, to have something to give to kids at the end of the day. And I, I think it's really sad in this country, 50% of families who our foster parents quit within the first year because nobody talks to them about that rhythm and they don't feel like they have the tools to create margin and they don't understand what self-care looks like and how to have a good rhythm. And it just all feels really, really hard. And they, they get really deep and especially families who are motivated by faith. They feel called to do something. They get deep into that story without the right tools in their hand. It just, if 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 it's not going the way that they imagined it and their expectation sets them up for failure, then they quit. And then there's a ton of shame that comes with that quitting. Like, I didn't have what it takes or God wasn't, wasn't there for us. And a bunch of lies end up getting inserted into that family. And so, again, here through the line, tons of passion on my part to want to equip families to feel like they can be in the story and have all the tools they need necessary in order to, to fulfill the call God has for them.
0: Let's continue to talk about some of the long-term effects of childhood trauma. Fascinating topic.
3: Well, some of the long-term uh, effects, Bill. Um, gosh, the interesting. I guess I would start by saying this: we, we're having a really interesting discussion right now with people in the corporate world, and as trauma-free world, as because they are beginning to recognize and see the effects of long-term trauma, chronic, developmental trauma in the lives of their colleagues, their co-workers, their clients, and the way that they see that is uh, the inability to, to um, make relationships, to uh, resolve conflict, um, the uh, inability to complete complex tasks, right? So what we know about the long-term effects of trauma, for example, is that people tend to li- who've experienced trauma ex- tend to live in their fear brain. Right, and the fear brain is sort of in the in the back of your brain, and it's the it's that thing that ignites when I'm afraid. And we talked about trauma; it might take my life. It's a fear that might take my life. And people who have experienced trauma, like COVID, for uh, you know more than a year, um, the racial reconciliation, the racial disruption that's been happening in America and around the world. These are the kinds of long-term effects. Even if you're not a child, but if they're happening when you're a child, that the long-term effect is that that you can't access the front part of your brain as effectively as if you didn't experience trauma. And the front part of your brain we know is where you make logical decisions and you you can discern um, what's happening in the relationship. You can discern how to resolve conflict. You, the front part is where you make all your executive decision-making. And, and kids who've experienced complex developmental trauma, their brain literally has not been wired in a way that allows them access to the front part of their brain and that's what we love about trauma-free world that's the thing that gets us up in the morning that there are there are things that every person can do that help a child access the front part of their brain Beth mentioned one at the beginning of the show and that's simply play right having kids laugh having kids play the relational connection of of playing with an adult or another safe child that actually begins to rewire what happens in the brain. And when we would take short-term mission trips, for example, when back-to-back would host short-term missions, we would, we would tell people, they'd say, why am I spending so much time playing with kids? Why, not, why, why am I not digging a ditch or building something or, you know, th- that's all great stuff. And we would say, you're not really playing with kids. You're healing their brains. Wow! Right? wow. You, you, you see it as play, but mm-hmm. you're, really, you're really engaged in the healing of a child's
0: brain.
2: That's fascinating. Yeah. sometimes the way I describe it is, I don't know if you drive fast, but one of the characteristics of me is that I drive way too fast. And so if I'm driving down the road and I'm driving, I'm speeding and I see, you know, a, a police officer pull behind me with his lights on, the first thing I do is like turn down the radio to so all the kids in my car be quiet. Like, because we have these, these parts of our brains, the way Rob is just describing that frontal lobe, creative thinking, cause and effect, Problem solving, and then that gland that's behind our ears that's called an amygdala, which is where we have the fight, flight, or freeze um, reaction. And those two things can't work at the same time. So I have to shut everything down because I'm either going to choose to, you know, to fight, um, freeze, or or flee, and. Once, once that police officer goes around my car and I realize he's going after someone else and I'm not afraid anymore, <laughs> then that amygdala stops firing behind my ears and now I can go back to the front of my brain and now I can listen to the radio and continue my conversation. But kids who have had any kind of trauma as a child, that the ability to go back and forth between the front of the brain and the back of the brain is not as easy as someone who has not experienced that kind of trauma. I can go back and forth as I'm triggered but even the smallest things can trigger them. It can even be things like a smell can trigger them or a sound, or it, it can be all kinds of things. It could be hunger, it could be, um, it could be anything. And then that, that door kicks open to their amygdala and they don't know quite how to shut it. And so again, really trauma training, it doesn't necessarily change the child, it changes the adult who interacts with the child so that they can lead the child into a place where they feel safe enough that that fight, flight, or freeze calms down and they're back to the front of their brain. But like, I have a bunch of teenage boys in my house, and I have been accused of saying to them, "What were you thinking?" But the truth of the matter is, sometimes they really weren't thinking. They were, they were firing off in their amygdalas in the back of their brain, and they didn't, they weren't able to access that logical thinking that I, as a third-party adult, is wondering. Why would you why why in the world would you think that was a good idea well they weren't actually thinking with their friends their brains they were just in that back part so I think if, when you think about long-term effects of kids who have experienced trauma um, one of the one of the things that we get the opportunity as adults to do is to teach children how to regulate themselves so that they can feel safe um, even if they don't feel safe and it, what I mean by regulation is you have really three cycles or three stages of regulation. You have dysregulation, which is I'm not doing okay. I am ready to fight. I'm ready to freeze. I'm ready to flee. I'm, I'm, I'm like a mess right now. You have co-regulation, which is when a, a second person, maybe an adult or a caregiver or somebody is helping co-regulate that child. They're, they're engaging that child in a way that's helping to calm them down. And then eventually you have self-regulation, which is a skill that we want children and eventually adults to learn. When they feel themselves getting triggered, they know what to do in order to feel safe. And teaching kids what to do when they feel dysregulated is a really critical step for them in a classroom, in a relationship, on a playground. Um, that, that's gonna help them make good choices in the moments when it most matters.
0: Rob, if you don't have a comment, I'm going to go to break because right now I've got like 71 questions and we're running out of time. So (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, I should have booked you guys for like four hours.
3: Well, we'll, yeah. Well, you said Beth was able to come back any time. And so, you know, I'm feeling good that I might be able to come back once or twice. That'd be awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, Beth is Uh, car blanche.
3: Yeah. The one thing I would add real quick before you go to break, Bill, is that that self-regulation, the co-regulation, dysregulation, that cycle that's something in normal, healthy um, families that somebody learns just as part of growing up. But in a in an atmosphere where a child is abused, neglected, um, that doesn't happen. And so, a child who's 16 years old who has never been taught about how to go through self regulation, you have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Mm. You have to you have to teach regulation as if they were three or four years old. You have to go back and walk through those steps because they didn't learn them when they were that age. And so you shouldn't expect a kid who's 16 who grew up in trauma to be able to, um, you know, just go directly to self-regulation. It's a skill that is learned, and it is learned, as Beth has said so many times, through a relationship. That's where that healing happens.
0: Fantastic. We'll take a break. Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall are my guests. We'll be right back.
1: to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: We're back with Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall, president of the Trauma-Free World Organization. So we have like only 11 minutes left or less, so I got to talk fast. Let's, uh, let's, why, why do some people heal and recover from past trauma in their lives and others can't seem to make that happen?
2: I mean, that's not a question that's easily answered in 11 minutes. I get it. Um, <laughs> but I would say th- there are different pieces to that answer. I think part of it is um, the self-awareness and willingness of the person to realize what it is that they need to either face or address or ask help for um, or seek counsel in. And, and then it has to do with the people that are around them that are giving them um, the right uh, response and um, attention, and it's it's kind of that. Especially when you're talking about adults, it it has to do with the willingness of the person and the and the environment that they place themselves in. Well, uh, rob you're a licensed counselor. You might have a different answer than that. What would you <laughs> say?
3: Well, it, it is almost. It feels almost like an unanswerable question. It's why do some people heal and others don't. Right. There's so many so many factors involved. It's personal resilience. It's, um, it's the intensity of the trauma that has occurred. One thing that I think I would add that just kind of pops in my brain right now is this idea of perception and its role in trauma. And so uh, I was a therapist for a long time and I worked a lot with kids who experienced sexual abuse as children. And, and one of the things that was abundantly clear is the, is the perception of what happens to a person, not the actual event. So I'll give a quick example. It's kind of a PG-13, so I hope that's okay. But, you know, uh, if, if someone is running down in the trail in a park and someone jumps out and flashes them, that's a kind of assault. And it's different, perhaps, if someone has a, a, a sexual assault of some other way. Um, you know, a uh, very harmful one. I understand. So I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. The di- the difference is that the person running down the path might perceive that I can't go anywhere and be safe, whereas the person who's been assaulted in a different way might say that was a that was a unique experience by this one person, and and it's not that I'm always unsafe. It's the perception of the event. It's not the event itself. And so that also has a really huge effect on people's ability to heal. Is the perception of the event that's happened to them? So that it could it could range anything from chemically what's happened in their body. It could range to the personal kind of resilience and character that they have. Um, it could be their perception. There's just so many variables that it's hard to hard to know why people might not reach the fullest of healing that they can. But the good news again is that there are really some simple intervention skills that people can learn that'll that allow that offer healing to people uh, for as long as they're willing to stay in the game right and we should never ever give up on the idea that someone could could find greater healing tomorrow than they have today and that there are there are skills that everyday people just like me and you can can use with with the people around us that help them do that
0: thank you for that answer Another question, considering trauma is defined by fearing for your life, a listener wants to know what about loss? Uh, lost her son, described it as a traumatic event, but generally did not fear for her life.
3: Mm, yeah, that's a great, great question. And absolutely that is true. It it, it did involve the, the loss of her life, but sometimes trauma can have, can um, take the fear of the loss of someone else's life. And so when, when we've experienced that, there the, the overlap between trauma and grief, right? That that event that has happened to us, the loss of a child, I can't think of anything more traumatic than that. And so, yes, while toxic stress and the kind of trauma we've been talking about, especially trauma in young children, um, as adults, we can experience that trauma in a different way. Um, and it might not be the fear of losing our own life. It could be the fear or the actuality of, of losing someone else's life.
2: Yeah, and it brings up for me uh, just a little tidbit, Rob. We can share about acute trauma, which losing someone's life is acute trauma. Um, when we're mm-hmm. we lose someone that we love, and that we have about science tells us we have about seventy-two hours to process what that loss feels like um, before it goes into a part of our long-term memory. It makes me think about when you and I did some consulting with the city of Houston when they experienced a hurricane a couple of years ago. And we were helping them understand that if if we don't help the children of that city understand all all the feels of what they were experiencing when the hurricane came and so many people were displaced from their home, then the next time there's a rain cloud they will associate their old feelings from when they had that actual traumatic event with this current storm, which may not be that threatening. And so um, sometimes people think, especially with kids, like, let's just distract them if something really hard happens, or let's just, let's not let them carry adult-sized problems. So let's not talk to them about something really hard that's happening around them or even to them. But the truth is that child needs to have someone look them in the eye and hear what it is that they're experiencing and put, Proof into their mind, so that they don't store it in a place where they'll where it will become a trigger for them later on in life. So that's true, of course, in the area of grief.
0: Yeah, amazing point, Beth. Thank you for that. Another listener would just like like to know about helping a young person in an addiction struggle.
3: Yeah, that that could be a little bit different than what we're talking about today. Although many people who find themselves in addiction, it is as a coping strategy right. as the result of trauma. We know that, for example, um, uh, kids are, or who've experienced trauma are 15 times more likely to attempt suicide, right? So we don't always connect those dots back. I think the, the stat is 10 times more likely to be involved with alcohol and drugs. And so addiction can absolutely be a coping mechanism for trauma. Um, it's, it's a little bit different than the kind of trauma intervention that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would certainly, I would certainly say that the, the best step is to, to start with the addiction and work backwards as compared to – that's sort of an emergency, right? How do we work on an addiction? And as part of that addiction work, then you can perhaps uncover trauma that, as a parent – again, as a therapist, I can remember – um, people would come in, and there would be a traumatic event that happened in the life of a child that the parent didn 't even know about, right something that um, you know again a sexual assault or or something that happened in the life of a child that that the parents didn 't even know and so, as you go into kind of that addiction uh, treatment, it can uncover a past history of trauma, and then you 're into how do i how do I bring healing in addition to the addiction to the, to the tra- trauma that's occurred.
0: Mm-hmm. We only have a couple of minutes left and I feel like we haven't haven't spoken at all about Trauma-Free World, which is at traumafreeworld.org. I'm gonna give you a, a minute or so to talk about that and I'd just love to have you back on again. The content has been so amazing that I just don't feel like an hour has been enough.
2: Wow. <laughs> well, we feel the same way. Yeah, well, uh, Trauma-Free World is really born out of our desire to get these resources, these tools into the hands of as many people as possible. To that end, uh, so to that end, Rob, who's the president of Trauma Free World, has an offer for any of your listeners who want to access further training. We certainly our desire is that there's no barrier or obstacle to people getting what they need in order to do this kind of work. Because, like I said at the beginning of the hour, there's a billion children on the planet who've experienced trauma, and that number is exponential on the other side of COVID.
3: Yeah, and I'd love for people to check out TraumaFreeWorld.org. Um, really, we were born out of this idea that for so long, trauma training has kind of found itself in the, in the purview of professionals, counselors, therapists, social workers. What Trauma-Free World really wants to do is to translate the latest research, the, the, the best research, into language that everybody can understand and to provide practical skills. So now I know about it. That's great. What do I do? And so, trauma-free world really wants to focus on bringing sort of that research base to the average person, and giving these, that person the the kind of skill that they can that they can use mm. every single day um, to 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 bring healing. So there we go. That wraps up our show. Have a great night and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.